Welcome to Populist. I'm Steve Hafer, and with me is the Lennon to my McCartney. See what I did there? It's the always available Kirk Trutner. How you doing, Kirk? Hello, mate. That was terrible. That was just awful. <laughs> I can't terrible. do a Liverpool accent to save my life. John Lennon just emerged from his grave. He's coming over here to slap you around. <laughs> hey, if that's what it took to get John Lennon back to us, I'll take it. I will absolutely yeah. take it. <laughs> Welcome to the last episode of season one of Populist. This is episode 20, and it is the best Beatles songs, top 10 Beatles songs of all time. And Steve, I know we say it every time, but man, this one was tough. Um, yeah, uh, we do say it every time. Well, you say it every time because <laughs> you beat me to it, but uh, I do. Yeah. Um, it was tough, and uh, as we were just talking before the show, uh, you could have made this a top 20, and it still would have been difficult, just a lot easier than the top 10, uh, and we were laughing that maybe we should have done worst Beatles songs or strangest Beatles songs or something, which would still be good topics, and who knows, maybe down the road we might do something like that, but uh, yeah, top 10 best Beatles songs, not easy, and very subjective. I mean, uh, when it comes down to it, it's... You know, it's basically what songs were meaningful to you. What were the influential or big in the business and in the industry? I mean, we'll set our criteria soon. But uh, yeah, it's been a little bit of a while since we did our last show. Sorry about that, listeners. But uh, life happened as COVID is starting to regress. Uh, traveling is happening. I know Kirk and I both went on separate trips. And so stuff just happened. But uh, we hope to do a good show for you here. It's the final episode of season one, Kirk. I know this has flown by as well. And and I, I hope all of you out there in podcast land have enjoyed listening to, you know, us two dopes arguing back and forth as much as we have had the fun of putting this all together. I've really enjoyed this experience. I'm looking forward to season two. And uh, again, I, I just I just hope people are enjoying this because it's a lot of fun to do. Yeah, likewise. And uh at the end of the show, we'll talk about uh, what's coming up next and uh, some stuff that they can hopefully look forward to in season two, some small tweaks and changes to the show and things like that. But uh, let's move on to this one. As you said, it is a tough category. Um, what did you use as your criteria to get down to the impossible task of the 10 best Beatles songs? This is subjective. It can't help but be subjective just to some extent. Yes, you can look at chart position. Yes, you can look at sales. Yes, you can look at, at you know, critical reviews, any number of things. But it really is about a combination of the the importance of the the songs in the catalog which is the critical which is the the sales and what it what it means to you how you know how did it speak to you in some way shape or form um there are so many songs you know we talked about it you know last night i had my list i was looking it over i started listening to to some beatles songs on shuffle and all of a sudden songs would come up and i would go how did i leave that one off how did i leave that one off and then you get back to the, okay, if I put that song on, which song comes off? You know, it is just so tough. Um, I don't think that there are any wrong answers, but conversely, there might not be any right answers as well. These are just our answers. And so I hope my, my list reflects uh, what a lot of people think and gives people an idea of what I think. You? Yeah, I agree. I think there is... In all honesty, this was weird because when we did best rock bands back in, what was that, show two, I think, episode two? Yeah. Um, 
the Beatles made both our lists as uh, the number one group, but they are also my favorite group too. Um, so it was it was hard to dig into this uh, and try to separate favorites from what I think is best. Uh, but my criteria is not picking the most popular songs and trying to pick what I really think are the best songs. Uh, even though it's still subjective, uh, I try to look at the composition of the song, uh, influence, innovation, importance uh, within the overall work uh, of the group. And what legs does it have? You know, how does the sound song still stand up over the years? Because uh, some of their songs, which were huge back then, eh, maybe after all these decades have gone by, they're starting to not be as hip or relevant anymore. Um, little side note, though, all my uh, all my picks hit number one either in the U S or the UK. Uh, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on where they, they ranked and how much money they made and everything. I'm going to kind of just dance around what I truly think is the best. And for that criteria that I used. Well, I'm really interested to hear your list. Uh, you know, again, we've talked about the Beatles, you and I, Stephen Kirk for, you know, as long as we've known each other, I was one of the first things I think we found that we had in common is that we love the Beatles. So I'm really interested to hear your list, but I also started thinking about our, our over under, and we talked a little bit about this before the show began, and I'm going to set the over under on common songs at five and a half. And uh, I'm going to go at four and a half. And I'm still kind of perplexed how we managed to turn our podcast into something that deals with Vegas bookmaking, but we have, <laughs> but, it's, but it's kind of fun. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Well, before we start though, that uh, brings us to our first segment, which is the unlisted segment. Um, what are three songs that will not be showing up on your list today? Three songs that will not be on my list, and and it already starts to break my heart to start naming some of these I songs. Know, right? <laughs> but here comes the sun will not be on my list. Uh, Can't buy me love will not be on my list, and Eleanor Rigby will not be on my list. Um, not appearing on my list today will be a hard day's night. Uh, Strawberry Fields Forever, very popular tune, and probably one of the most popular tunes of all time in Beatle history, Hey Jude, will not be appearing on my list. Uh, and I love it. If, it was, if I was doing a favorites, the things I love, it would be on there. But I can make the argument right now, and I look at your face, that uh, it's not one of the best. Very repetitive, simple lyrics, simple tune. Uh, so there you go. You, you realize you realize simple lyrics, simple tune could apply to a number of American classics, right? Yes, they could. But does that necessarily make them the best classic or the best song or anything? So, you know, it's uh, simple, but it's repetitive. Like I said, the whole second half of this, the song is just repeating. And if it wasn't for McCartney and his little impromptu riffs going on in there, it would, it would uh, fringe on being boring. So, uh, but it's beloved. It's easy to sing along with. It's, uh, easy lyrics to, to know. And it is a comfort food, a favorite song of mine, but it's not going to make my list today. Strap in kids. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> I thought you'd like that one. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. Well, since I went first last time, you go first this time. So let's get down to it and let's talk about your number 10, Kirk Trutner. Number 10. 
At the risk of uh, not disappointing all those folks out there who wait for Kirk's cheat, I'm going to get the cheat out of the way quickly. At number 10, <laughs> number 10 for me is... No, you cannot do this. This is not fair. Not fair. Not fair. I was going to do this. Nope. I beat you to it. My number 10 is a tie between Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane. Uh, two singles that were released between the album releases of Revolver and Sgt. Pepper. Uh, the reason I'm putting them together is they are essentially two sides of the same coin. Lennon and McCartney looking at, back at their childhoods. Um, they originally were written as part of a childhood concept album the Beatles were going to do that was scrapped in favor of, of Sgt. Pepper. And to me, it really illustrates the rock versus pop approach that Lennon and McCartney took when they were writing songs that come to, came to shape the Beatles. Um, Strawberry Fields Forever set the stage for psychedelic rock. Penny Lane, I think, is a song that really uh, showcased McCartney's pop sensibilities. Um, and, and it really was a, a great insight into both writers and how they, they viewed their childhoods and how they wanted to express that. Um, and then both songs, I think, set the stage for Sgt. Pepper, which pushed the creative and technical boundaries to create an album that many call the greatest rock album of all time. So between the listenability, the importance, uh, insight into the writers, uh, I put Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane at number 10. Cheater, cheater, cheater. Thy name is Kirk Trittner. Uh <laughs> Good Lord. I was literally laughing last night. I was going, yeah, maybe I should start off with a tie. Oh, no, I can't do that. And I said, Kirk's probably going to try hard not to do it this time. Oh, how wrong I was. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. If there was one topic that I was going to try and sneak an extra song or two or eight into, this was it. <laughs> I know. But that, God dang it. This would be the one to do. And like I said, it would be a top 20. I'd have ties for everything. But oh, man. Um, good choices. Uh, and once again, the other phrase that we're going to find ourselves saying all the time is, yes, definitely worthy. You know, <laughs> neither are on my list. Definitely worthy, and I look for. I really looked hard for a place to put Penny Lane in because uh, I, I really like it. I like the whimsical journey through their through their town that they take, uh, and it's it's just it's what they encompass as far as Lennon McCartney, their songwriters. They love just taking little pieces out of the news or little pieces from their upbringing, and they just get a two, three, four word theme, and they write about it, and they do it well. So, good choice. My number 10 uh, is kind of an interesting song because it uh, it was number one in both the UK in 1963 and the US in 1964, but it had no appearance on a UK album, uh, and that is I Want to Hold Your Hand. It was the first mega hit in the US for the Beatles. Um, Capitol Records refused to release uh, the first several Beatles singles of, uh, in the US and the, had been hits in the UK, but Brian Epstein, the band's manager, uh, convinced Capital that I Want to Hold Your Hand was produced with that American sound uh, in mind. And Capital agreed, and the song became a huge success. Later appeared on the first U.S. album, Meet the Beatles, uh, which I happen to be a proud owner of. And uh, it was a huge staple for the group's repertoire during their first U.S. tour, including the famous Shea Stadium concert and the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, it's in my opinion, the song that is part of the first picture that we all have in our minds of that young Fab Four and Beatlemania and the British Invasion. Uh, and that's all the excitement that surrounded the group then. So I want to hold your hand as my number 10. As you said, we'll be saying this a lot. Excellent choice. 
And uh, I'll be talking a little bit about it much later on. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Nod, nod, nod. All right. Well, then let's see what your number nine is. Number nine. Number nine is the, in my opinion, the best song that George Harrison wrote for the Beatles. And it is from the White Album. It's While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Uh, This is a song that is not only a song that is really stood the test of time. I mean, back in the 70s and 80s, it, it became one of those rock staples along with Stairway to Heaven and Freebird and Layla from Derek and the Dominoes, et cetera, et cetera, that, that FM radio played endlessly and for good reason. Um, but for George Harrison, it really helped put him in the same company as Lennon and McCartney after all these years as a songwriter. And it really set the stage for him to go from While My Guitar Gently Weeps in 68 to writing something, and here comes the sun in 1969. Um, This is a song where the Beatles were fragmenting. Uh, Eric Clapton played lead on this song at George's invitation. Um, He actually uh, heard the final product and told George, you might want to make my guitar sound a little bit more uh, beatly because he really felt like he was intruding on, on, you know, the the four guys and and the Beatles themselves. Uh, There's a great acoustic demo of this song on the album uh, anthology three widely considered to be one of the songs that made the biggest change from demo to finished product. It was a song influenced very much by transcendental meditation, which the Beatles were into. George was trying to take the Beatles into Uh, Paul and Ringo both had great admiration for, for both uh, this song and something Ringo called it two of the finest love songs ever written. Mick Jagger said only a guitar player could have written while my guitar gently weeps. It's it's poignant, it's beautiful, it's timeless, and it is my number nine. Great choice. Uh, it is probably my favorite Harrison song, uh, but there's the big three uh, of the Harrison songs, and um, I think it's easily the best song on the White Album, which has some other very good, uh, very good songs in it. Uh, obviously, uh, back in the USSR, Dear Prudence, uh, Obladi, Oblada, Happiness is a Warm Gun. You know, there's a lot of blackbird there's there are some good songs on there but uh, it is the best good choice my number nine is uh, a song that uh made your unlisted list and that is the uh mostly paul mccartney written eleanor rigby from revolver in 1966 it was featured in the movie yellow submarine but it's an important piece in the evolution of composing uh, as far as lennon mccartney and even to a degree george harrison is concerned Paul uh, implored George Martin, their uh, their brilliant uh, collaborator, studio engineer, producer, um, and and John Lennon as well, to use strings for the song as the backing instruments. He just wanted it to have a different sound and be different than anything else that's ever been written. So they added four violins, two violas, two cellos, uh, and it was a masterful touch. And it led to them liking that overall sound and letting, leading to uses of bigger orchestras for uh, albums like Magical Mystery Tour and especially Sgt. Pepper's. Um, it's just another innovation that would inspire other rock bands such as The Stones, The Who, Queen, and countless others uh, over the following years. Basically a sad song. It's a song about loneliness. It's uh, about being alone as we go through our mundane tasks and in our individual lives. Uh, but it, with those punctuating strings in there, it's a very unique sound. It's very haunting, but melodic and beautiful at the same time. Little, uh, little side note, the priest um, mentioned in the song, 
uh, was originally going to be called Father, Father McCartney, <laughs> but Paul didn't want to place a stigma on his dad as being some lonely character. And so they opened up a phone book. They looked through anything that had kind of that that cadence to it, and they came up with Mackenzie. So Father Mackenzie was born that way. But that's my number nine, a very influential and uh, innovative hit, Eleanor Rigby. And that it is a great song, but it's also one of those songs that as soon as it comes on, you're immediately put into a melancholy mood. I mean, you could be at a bachelor party and that song comes on and everybody will get into a little bit of a dour melancholy mood, which says a lot about the song. I mean, that's the kind of emotion that it that it that it evokes. Uh, it is a great song. It's again, as we said, embarrassment of riches uh, did not make my list, but it's a terrific song. If I may, it says more about the Yahoo who put the playlist together for that bachelor party. What the heck is he doing putting that thing on? <laughs> at that point, I would blame Spotify. Yeah. Can I introduce you to Sam and Dave? Can I introduce you to a few <laughs> other choices? <laughs> Moving on. Number eight. So at number eight, I've got a song that is immediately identifiable due to an unmistakable Rickenbacker 12-string guitar mighty opening chord. My number eight is A Hard Day's Night. According to George Martin, uh, they knew that this song was going to be the the open both the film Hard Day's Night and the soundtrack uh, album from the movie. And they wanted something that would be particularly very strong and effective. Um, it is a chord that is unmistakable. You you can hear some songs, not just Beatles songs, but but any band, and have to listen for four, five, ten seconds before you go, oh, God, that's right, that's this song. With A Hard Day's Night, as soon as you hear that chord and as soon as that energy comes up, you know exactly what this song is. And it really does, for me, illustrate the effervescence, the joyfulness that the Beatles had in 1964 when they were, were you know, just beginning to peak and become the the global force in music that they were. Um, with the album and the single, they did something that nobody else had done before, and that was hold the number one position on both the album and singles charts in the United States and the United Kingdom at the same time. Uh, this was a signal that that they were entering a new era, past the very beginning, kind of Buddy Holly, simpler pop that they had been doing into something a little bit more complex. Uh, and again, George Martin was beginning to become involved with the with the band, um, and it was also a very influential song. If you want to start, you know, stringing things together and connecting the dots, the Rickenbacker that Harrison used in this song inspired Roger McGuinn of the Birds to put down his acoustic guitar and pick up an electric guitar. And that began to define the sound of the birds, which then inspired Tom Petty when he began the band, the heartbreakers. And it just shows you how these musical ideas can inspire and, and influence generations down the road as well. Hard day's night has always been one of my favorite songs. It's energetic. Uh, it will always remind me of the movie, which is one of my favorite movies. I uh, had to find a place on my list. Uh, and so here it sits at number eight. Interesting choice. Um, it's uh, it's probably only my third favorite. I'm emphasizing the word favorite, and I'm not saying best or anything uh, from that album uh, because I personally love uh, "If I Fell" and um, oh shoot, I'm forgetting the other one. Uh, but but it's 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 an amazing song. But definitely make my top twenty. That's for sure. Um, but uh, maybe I should have just gone for a bunch of ties and just had all these songs on there. <laughs> I thought about it too. Um, and this would be the category to do it. Yes. My number eight is from, um, if Sergeant Peppers is the 
best overall uh, rock album that uh, the Beatles produced, which I think a lot of people would agree. This comes from the album that might hold the title being the best engineered of the Beatles albums. That's from Abbey Road in 1969, and the song is Come Together. It began, strangely enough, uh, with <laughs> the intention of possibly being a campaign song for Timothy Leary, uh, the LSD-supporting uh, candidate for California governor, uh, as he was planning a run in uh, 1969 to take on Ronald Reagan. Well, that all didn't come to be, uh, and the song, thank goodness, just found its place to everybody's ears through its normal channels on a Beatles album. It became a hit for its nod towards the psychedelic days and its statement of a universal political and sexual liberation. It uh, used a Chuck Berry line, uh, Here Comes Old Flat Top, from one of his songs, uh, You Can't Catch Me, and it actually landed Lennon in a little bit of legal trouble that he had to not completely work his way out of, but uh, he, he got it enough so that it could be used in the song. Uh, Lennon, regarding the, all the other lyrics, Lennon himself called it uh, gobbledygook, but he had a ton of fun write, writing it. And uh, it's a very studio engineered song, but it's a great song. And it is almost solely written by Lennon. It's very funky, quirky and dark, yet playful and nonsensical. The song toys with the listener, uh, both with the lyrics and the music. And I think that's what its main appeal is. And also, I got to say, one of the best covers of any Beatles song, I think, is on this song, which was done by Aerosmith for the movie uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which, which was made you know, much later with the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton and all them. Uh, it's a great song. You recognize it as soon as you hear those uh, opening guitar and bass lines. Uh, it's uh, very memorable. It kind of sinks into your senses. Come together. My number eight. Great choice. I, you know, as, as part of this examination of songs and the research we've been doing i have come to realize that i am a much i'm much more partial to the softer more melodic beatles tunes um rather than the the hard charging ones so songs like come together or revolution uh etc you know I, i'm more in favor of some of the more melodic stuff so i'm probably falling more into the mccartney camp than the lennon camp uh, but I would agree. I thought the I thought the uh, Aerosmith cover of this for for the the musical Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was awesome, as was the Earth, Wind and Fire cover of Got to Get Got to Get You Into My Life, which is still a staple of of their catalog as well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Did not make my list, but but yeah, I, I love the song. Again, let's just put that on a loop. And we actually. Uh agree a little bit on our sensibilities of what makes some of the best Beatles songs is of my top six. Only one of those has a upbeat, fast paced tempo uh, of my top six. So you'll, you'll see that I, I fall in line with your thinking as well, but let's move on. As we get closer to that top six, we still have a seven to talk about. What is Kirk Trutner's seventh best Beatles song? Number seven. For the first time in this season, I've got a second cheat. I'm going to have to play those. Is this really the first time you've had two cheats? <laughs> I think so. Okay. And even so, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a true cheat. Um, I think most people would consider what I'm going to, to list as my number seven as a single piece of music, but uh, it is the Abbey road medley, the is, side yeah. two Abbey road medley. What was that? Said so, as soon as you said that, I said, yes, I know what the cheat is. Okay. That's almost, <laughs> 
it's almost allowed and it speaks to the engineering marvel of what i just talked about yes <laughs> and and i'm even going to get a little bit more specific to hopefully make this a little bit more but my number seven is are the final three songs uh of the side two abbey road medley and that is golden slumbers carry that weight and the end abbey road was not the last album to be released but it was the final album the beatles recorded so Technically, and in in many ways, it was the last Beatles album. Um, And for the last song on that album to finish with the line, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. I mean, could you write a better epitaph for the time that you spent as a band together? You're summing up the times. You're summing up the feeling in the world. You know, essentially, you're 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 rephrasing or paraphrasing the the golden rule, and you just put it in such a simple, sweet message uh, at the end of your last album. Uh, and the 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 amazing thing is, only the Beatles could take snippets of unfinished songs because that's really what the side two was. Uh, at that point in time, the Beatles were fragmented; they were everywhere but collectively in the same room they took these snippets they wove them together and they effortlessly created their perfect farewell in, in the parlance of our industry the entertainment industry they wrote their own series finale perfectly and that is such a hard thing to do uh, i've loved this this trilogy of songs ever since i heard it it's always spoken to me in some way shape or form we talked about subjectivity at the beginning of this this is one that subjectivity really got uh into my choice so number seven for me are the final three songs of the side two abbey road medley golden slumbers carry that weight in the end well if you're gonna make a second cheat that's a good one to make what a great way to end up an album and technically it was ending their career uh, since Abbey Road and Let It Be were kind of recorded at the same time. The other thing that little piece of trivia from the end that I like is it's Ringo's only recorded traditional drum solo. Yeah, I read that too. And there it is at the, at the very end of their career. He, he finally, I mean, he has little fills and little solos leading into songs, but not true solos. This is the only one that he ever did. So great choice. Three really good songs engineered and tied together. One more piece of trivia. While the end is the final song of that couplet, I think, as we all know, as all Beatle fans know, 20 seconds after the end of that song, you have that little snippet of Her Majesty. Mm-hmm. The story about that was that was originally supposed to go right after Mean Mr. Mustard, but McCarty didn't like it and said, let's take it out. So when they did the final dub and were presenting the master, the engineer liked it so much that he said, I can't get rid of it. So he put that 20 seconds of leader and then stuck it at the end of the of the tape just to say, well, at least you still have it. McCartney heard it positioned there and went, love it, leave it. Good story. My number seven is uh, one of the songs you've already talked about, and uh, it is the Harrison classic, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. This may not be his best song, but I it's the one that's nearest and dearest to my heart. Uh, this and Here Come the Sun, I just have always... Love from just where I heard them. It's kind of a sense memory thing. You remember when you hear songs for the first time and what was going on and they kind of be near and dear to your heart. So that's, that's that. Um, it's a soulful gem, uh, by Harrison, uh, appeared on the white album, as you mentioned, 1968. Um, he wrote the lyrics after picking a random book off his, uh, parents bookshelf. And he took the first phrases that he saw, uh, gently weeps. 
and wrote a song about it. And what a song he wrote. Uh, I love the Clapton story that you already talked about, uh, where <laughs> Harrison was a little stuck. So he went to his friend, uh, and nice friend to have and Eric Clapton and Clapton handed, uh, that, uh, Gibson Les Paul that he had given Harrison as a gift a little while earlier. And they just started working it out. Uh, and it's, it's became great. One of the reasons that I think shows how great this song is, it actually might be one of the few songs that keeps getting better with age, uh, at Harrison's, uh, posthumous uh rock and roll hall of fame induction uh tom petty and steve winward and a special appearance by prince came out and they played this and it was amazing and it was just one of those things that swept the room it was the talk of the night uh it was amazing and uh that's what this song is a song that's written for guitarists uh it's written to be played by wonderful guitarists and it dazzles the and it can be altered a little bit here and there, but you still know what it is. Great lyrics, great George Harrison tune. I think you nailed it on the head when you said it gets better with age. And that's something I didn't think about, but I think you're absolutely right. It's one of those songs that, you know, <laughs> I hate saying this. I really do because it makes me feel incredibly old. But now, more than 50 years later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that just crushes me that the Beatles stuff has been out for more than 50 years. Um, that it it still it still resonates, it still sounds good. Kids can listen to it. Great choice. On the White Album, I don't know about you, but when I first had the White Album, the first two songs for me that jumped out to me were Back in the USSR and Helter Skelter. Those were the first two as a young kid. You're going, Oh yeah, these are cool, these are rock and everything. But as time goes by, while my guitar gently weeps and Blackbird are the two that have become my favorites off of the album. I'm going to split the difference. Um, back in the USSR jumped out at me, both Helter Skelter and I'm forgetting the oh, revolution. I just, they weren't the melodic tunes that I was used to hearing from the Beatles. So they never really kind of grabbed me. Um, but my, while my guitar gently weeps, um, uh, Blackbird, uh, you know, some of the softer, more melodic things off the album I, I, are, are some of the the best in the Beatles canon. While I'm not mentioning them on this list, you know, they're, they're, they're still, again, to your point, they've gotten better with age and they're still very, very listenable. Yeah, definitely. All right. We are moving on now. Uh, and I'm assuming you don't have another cheat or do you? Number six. I've only got one song at number six. Uh, it was, uh, I, like many of your songs, it was a number one song. Um, it's one that I am very surprised that is not on your list at some point. And it is the Beatles classic, Hey Jude. Uh, it's hard to imagine now, but Hey Jude was kind of a comeback song. Uh, for the Beatles. Following Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, uh, the Beatles released uh, Magical Mystery Tour, the movie, which was crushed, crushed by the critics. So much so, it didn't even get a release in the United States. Uh, they followed that up with the single Lady Madonna, which peaked at number four on the charts, which isn't too bad for most bands, but for the Beatles, you know, that was a bit of a, uh-oh, is the bubble bursting kind of thing. Uh, hey Jude was released on August 26, 1968, and it only took three weeks to get to number one and stayed there for nine weeks. Billboard has called Hey Jude the most popular song of the 60s, and it is easily one of the most respected songs that the Beatles have, have recorded. Uh, I think we all know the story. Uh, Paul wrote the song uh, as he felt sorry for Julian. Uh, John Lennon's son, He was uh, John was divorcing his wife, Cynthia, at the time. And as Paul said, he always felt bad for the kids 
in these kinds of situations because in in their young minds they they don't know what's going on was it me did i do something so he just wanted to comfort julian and and he just wanted to let him know hey everything's going to be okay uh which is something that he has in common with another song i'm going to talk about a little bit later on that's another kind of 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 uh beatles anthem um but that's McCartney. That's McCartney trying to be the father figure, trying to be the comforter, um, just letting people know, hey, you know, it's going to be OK. Um, and who hasn't when they're driving along, had this song come on the radio or you ask Siri to play it or what have you. And you just turn it up, roll the windows down. You start driving a little faster. It's just one of those songs that you love singing along to it. it to your point, it's comfort food, but it's it's gourmet comfort food. It is absolutely wonderful it, it is a signature song for the beatles for me it's got all the hallmarks it's popular it's creative it's innovative um it's significant and it is my number six like i said before it is easily one of the most popular beatles songs ever um but to me that doesn't necessarily make it one of the best um and so would it be my top 20? Absolutely. But it's just not making my top 10. Your top 20 is turning into your top 30. Not yet, but give me, give me two more picks. <laughs> um, <laughs> my number six is the most covered song in history, according to Rolling Stone and many other publications. And that is the song Yesterday. Pure 100% McCartney. Lennon had nothing to do with this one. Uh, it's from the Help album in 1965. And uh, it's considered to be perhaps one of McCartney's best songs. It began, according to McCartney, uh, in a dream. He just had a dream and the song came to him. Uh, He woke up and he just, it was there. Every single note was there and he just started playing it. Uh, And as he was working through it, uh, he gave it the working title of Scrambled Eggs for whatever reason and whatever that means. But that was the story. It was called Scrambled Eggs Once Upon a Time. Once McCartney unscrambled his thoughts, uh, he he gave it the title yesterday, and this enduring song was created and born and released to the world. Uh, It was only released in the U.S. Uh, The band didn't think it would be such a huge hit as it was. But yesterday is also a little bit of a hallmark because this is where George Martin, uh, their engineering producer, started to score their music uh, as he did with uh, the string quartet attached to yesterday. Lennon remarked uh, what a beautiful song it was uh, with beautiful lyrics. Uh, But he also noted that the song was unique because there was no resolution to to the story within the song. Uh, But it is simple. It's a beautiful piece of music and it really stands the test of time. Yesterday, my number six. I love, I love this choice. Um, This is going to be one of those songs that you and I both have on our list. I'll talk about it in just a, a, a few minutes. Yeah, it's uh, putting together the top six. It, boy, it, I could have put it almost in any order um, with maybe the exception of my number one, as I mentioned before. But let's uh, get closer to that Mount Rushmore. What is your number five? Number five. My number five is a song that you've already mentioned, and that is I Want to Hold Your Hand. Um, this was the Big Bang. This launched the British invasion. Uh and this launched the Beatles, frankly, in the United States. But after it got played, a uh, bootleg version of it on a DC station, and then the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan, the song absolutely blew up. It was 22 weeks on the chart, five at number one. And again, it launched the British invasion. At one point, the single for this song was selling 10,000 copies an hour 
an hour in New York City alone. Um, lyrically, it's very simple. Musically, it's very complex. It's easy to sing to. It's easy to clap to. Uh, Brian Wilson said when he heard this song, he knew immediately everything had changed. Dylan said they were doing things nobody was doing. Their chords were outrageous, but their harmonies made it all valid. Um, this is the first time an album had outsold the single. Meet the Beatles outsold uh, the single of I Want to Hold Your Hand, which made Billboard and those folks who kept charts at that time really refocus on album charts rather than just singles charts. I mean, we all remember, well, those of a certain age remember 45s. You know, that's what people bought. They went to stores and bought those, and albums were an afterthought. With this song, people wanted more of the Beatles. They wanted to hear more. And so the album became a bigger seller uh, than the single. It was the longest-running number one single the Beatles had until Hey Jude came out. Uh, Rolling Stone called it the number 16 of 500, of the 500 greatest rock songs of all time. And, and again, it launched the British invasion. It helped to break the stones, the kinks, the Dave Clark five, the animals, the Yardbirds, uh, and, a, a little band, a few of my friends like called, the uh, oh, the who. So this was the seismic shift. This was the song that really launched the next big thing. I want to hold your hand is number five. Yeah. As we talked, or as I talked about earlier and you just did, uh, that song along with uh i think she loves you were just the two instrumental songs uh, for the beatles in the u.s um and it gave them that distinction of the uh the ooh and the yeah 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 that those just cemented though that image and that uh that moniker for them good choice my number five is um the sergeant pepper's hit uh, a day in the life 60% Lennon, 40% McCartney, 100% great. The closing song of the album has George Martin's influences all over it as well and his genius. Uh, he wrote these dizzying orchestral crescendos and that endlessly reverberating final chord that everybody remembers. And if you really listen to it and watch it on a track, it's 40 seconds long. Um, but everybody, as soon as you hear that chord, it can be out of place and anything. Oh, yeah, I know that. <laughs> I know that chord. Um but it's perhaps the best pure collaboration by Lennon and McCartney ever, in my mind. Uh, they talk about uh, the morning routines, but in different emotional hemispheres. Lennon is dark, coming through the news. McCartney is upbeat and handling life with a grin. Uh, it's an engineering masterpiece, the song itself, uh, with uh, echo, studio twist, orchestral transitions, and so much more. It's like uh, three or four different songs tied together. Uh James Taylor said the song was right up there in terms of catching the spirit of the times and talking about uh, alienation and strange attachment everyone was going through. Leonard Bernstein, somebody on the other end of the musical scope, said three bars of A Day, uh, day in the Life uh, still sustain me and rejuvenate me and flame my senses and sensibilities. Uh, it's a great song. It affected so many people. It's one of those songs you can listen to over and over again and find more new stuff in it, uh, both in the lyrics and in the music construction itself. Um, it was also famous for being a part of the, one of the clues from the famous Paul is dead hysteria slash hoax, uh, with a line. He blew his mind out in the car because according to the hoax, uh, or the, whatever you want to call it, uh, Paul died, uh, in a car accident. So it was all part of that as well. And if you want to learn more about that hoax, 
Just listen to the song Glass Onion from uh, <laughs> the White Album. It, it tells you where a lot of the clues are. But that's my number five, A Day in the Life. Fun fact about A Day in the Life, it is one of the rare Beatles songs where the song title is not in the lyrics. That's right. I'll have more fun facts about A Day in the Life a little bit later on when uh, its place on my Mount Rushmore will be revealed. Well, let's start with that Mount Rushmore, shall we? Number four. The first song on my Mount Rushmore, my number four, uh, is a song that you've already talked about, uh, and that is Yesterday. Um, you mentioned a lot of the things that is that are widely known about the song. Most covered song of all time, more than 3,000 different versions of it. Um, you mentioned George Martin, and I'm glad you did, because uh, this he Martin was quoted as saying, this was the first song he felt he was able to begin to leave his hallmark on Beatles songs. He was the one who added the strings or suggested adding the strings to McCartney uh, and, and making it that. But it also made the song one of the few songs the four Beatles could not reproduce live. So that's why it became an acoustic song in, in any of the live performances that they had afterwards as well. Uh, it's also significant, too, because it's only McCartney on the track. And this was the slow start to the four individual Beatles drifting away rather than being part of a group. Um, up till then, almost everything had been done. Four people in a room get it done. And this was the first song that Paul kind of drifted over here a little bit. They still work together as a collective past that, but the seeds had been sown. And and that's when people begin to drift. And you get things like Harrison doing While My Guitar Gently Weeps um, and, and other songs as well. Um, Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager at the time, asked Paul, because it was just Paul on the song, do you want to release it just as Paul McCartney, not as the Beatles? And Paul said, no, we are not breaking up the Beatles. Um, it's a wistful song. Um, it's one that as you hear it, you, you, you don't forget it easily. Um, I think yesterday is, is a, a true classic. Um, it's one of my favorite Beatles tracks as well as being, in my opinion, one of the most important Beatles tracks. And it is the first face on my Mount Rushmore. And that is yesterday. Great choice. You know, I love the song. My number four is the... And the first appearance on my Mount Rushmore is the only fast-paced song on that. I told you that there was one within my top six, and this is it. And that's because I felt that, you know what, part of the attraction of the Beatles and part of what makes them so good is they are a hell of a lot of fun when they are having fun. And so it needed one song on my Mount Rushmore, and that is from the album Help in 1965. It is the title track, Help. Uh, it's emanating from a strange yet fun film, which produced uh, an amazing batch of songs, though. And uh, Help, to me, is the most fun of them all. It moves. It's fun. It's upbeat with great backing vocals. Yet it's Lennon's personal cry for help, which, once again, is them taking kind of a serious subject or a down subject and making it fun and upbeat and fast. Uh, it's about his fear and alienation and how much easier things were for him when he was so much younger than today. Part of the lyrics. Uh, he was having trouble with living in the spotlight and is really just calling for compassion and friendship and, if you will, help. Uh, it sounds sad, but as I said, it's one of the best catchy, fast-paced songs in their entire catalog. Uh, the song was performed during uh, the famous Ed Sullivan Show appearance and has been hugely popular ever since its release. And uh, to me, it's just 
really a good picture of what they do when they do it very well. Subject matter playing opposite of the fast upbeat uh, music. Help is mine number four. I, I love this song. Um, I so wanted to find a place for it on, on the list. Um, I love the movie. Um, I, I'm, I'm grateful for the movie to have inspired the monkeys mm-hmm. and given us the monkeys. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a terrific song. Everything you said about it, the catchiness, the upbeat, it, you know, and it's to me, it's eminently re-listenable. I don't know if that's a word or not, but it is. Now. You, know, you could put that song on a loop and I could listen to it all day long. Uh, it, it's just a terrific song. I wish I could have found a place for it, but I, I'm glad that you put it on your list and on your Mount Rushmore. Cool. What's number three on yours? Number three. My number three is a song that John Lennon called his first real major piece of work. Uh, it is a song that I came late to in the Beatles catalog. You know, I, I tended to stay with. Uh, the happy peppy upbeat songs when I was a kid. Um, and it was only later on that I stumbled on, on some of their more uh, thoughtful and, and, and uh, um, I don't know, nostalgic songs, but my number three is in my life uh, from the album rubber soul. Uh, Lennon said this was the first song that he wrote that consciously captured his life. Uh it certainly sounds like an old soul wrote this song, but it is so hard to believe that John Lennon was only 25 years old when he wrote this song. Um, and unfortunately, this song gained real emotional importance and depth after his untimely depth. Um, uh, I'm not going to be able to give it credit. I read this on, on the net as I was doing research, but somebody said it became a shared epitaph for us all. It, 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 it became something that we could remember John by. Um, by remembering that in my life, I loved you all. And that's what we want to remember of John Lennon, that, you know, we loved him and we're so grateful that he loved us as well. Um, Paul helped write the song a little bit, but we all embrace this as, as a John song. Uh, Rolling Stone called it the 23rd greatest song of all time. It's one that will never fail to make me feel nostalgic, make me make me remember the good times that that you and I have shared or my times in high school or my t- time with friends and family. Um, it's just one of those songs that that means so much to so many people. And and, you know, I can go on and on about it and I won't. But but in my life is my number three. Awesome song. Um, you said it very well. And uh I might add just something a little later down the road here, <laughs> but Ooh. my number three uh, will be something that I add right now. And that is Harrison's masterpiece. Something. Um, it is, like I said, how much uh, I love while my guitar gently weeps and here comes the sun. This is the third jewel of that triple crown. Uh, it is one of the most beautiful yet haunting Beatles love songs uh, ever. It's uh, masterfully done. Uh, it talks about hopefulness and doubt in the same breath. Uh, Harrison's first and only A-side release as a single. Uh, it, it was um, it's actually released as a co-A-side with, um, shoot, what was it, Come Together? Perhaps. I forget. But the, yes, I think so. Yeah, the, but they uh, they basically said it's a a there is no b on this that they they the group see them as equal uh it's been covered over 150 times which is second for the beatles songs uh it's been covered by uh a list artists like uh, ray charles and Smokey robinson 
Lennon thought it was the best song on Abbey Road. Uh, at least that's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's beautiful, serene guitar and vocals by Harrison are sublime. Uh, it's the most subtle, subdued mega hit ever for the group. Uh, it grabs you. You don't realize you've been grabbing by it until you just realize that, wow, I've been humming this song for a whole week now. So that's my number three, Something by George Harrison. I've got a confession to make. As a testament to the the power of music and how much it can grab you, I remember hearing something for the very first time when I was maybe eight or nine years old, maybe a little older. But the version that I heard was one that my mom played, which was the Ray Conniff version of something. Oh, which was not the first one you want to hear. Terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. And it imprinted on my mind back then and has stayed with me so long. I it, it is hard to get the stink of that song out of my head and be able to look at the Harrison Beatles version of it in any kind of objective way. This is not an easy song to sing. This is not an easy song to 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 convey the emotion of. Harrison did it. You know, people should have just left it alone. No one was going to top it. Even Sinatra, who called it his favorite song, is not going to top it with his version. I'm still trying to rinse it out. And so I, that's why I couldn't put it in my top 10. But it really is one of Harrison's best. It's a classic. And I'm, I'm so glad you put it on your list. Yeah, it's so it's sorry, Norm. Yeah, and sorry, Ray Conniff, but yeah, you are kind of considered the vocal equivalent Ugh. of Muzak. Uh, it's, uh, oh my God. But uh, yeah, Harrison is the best on this song because of his insecurities and his vulnerabilities. He was very insecure about his singing voice, as was John Lennon, which is surprising. Only McCartney really thought that he had a decent voice. And, you know, I guess you would say McCartney is the best singer, but... Harrison and Lennon, their personalities come out in what they do and their approaches to music come out in what they do. And it's perfect. And it's what they intended. And you, it's almost hard to imagine hearing it any other way. Well put. All right, my friend, moving on. What's your number two? Number two. My number two uh, was inspired by a dream that Paul had about his mother, Mary. Uh, if that doesn't give it away, my number two, my third face on Mount Rushmore is Let It Be. Uh, this is just a great song with a great message. Let things be. This too will pass. It will be all right. Uh, and that's the message Paul said his mother gave to him in his in his dream is that everything's going to be OK. And that's essentially the message of, of this song. But it's also catchy. It's also one that you can sing along to. You drum, you know, on your steering wheel to it, you know, as well. Uh, for many years, people assume this had a, a number of religious overtones. Uh, Mother Mary, the emotional heft of the song, the gospel feel of the song. Uh, McCartney denies all of it. He finally said, look, the Mother Mary I'm talking about is my mother, comma, Mary, uh, in this. It was on the last album the Beatles released, um, another great coda for them, well, uh, for them as well, and it's it's very appropriate to, uh, about leaving the problems behind and moving on in life. The Beatles were were absolutely fragmented and and you know almost at each other's throats at this point in time. Rolling Stone called it the number twenty song of the top five hundred of all time as well. Um, it is that one song I think a lot of people think about with the Beatles when you say, "Hey, name a couple Beatles songs." They're going to name Let It Be. Uh, McCartney has kept it alive in his live performances these last 50 years. They've used it in any number of great cause 
uh, situations, whether it's it's Live Aid, whether it's um, any of the other smaller things that that McCartney's done. There was a ferry disaster in the eighties. I think he he raised money for using this song. Um, but it is one of hope. It is one of of continuing on, persevering, and again, everything's going to be okay. And who doesn't need that message yesterday, today, and tomorrow? Um, so my number number two is "Let It Be." Amazing, amazing song. Uh, I will discuss it later. <laughs> Spoiler. Um, my number. So we're going to split the difference. It looks like. Yep. My number two is uh, something you've already mentioned, and that is uh, in my life. And you said it very well. Uh, it's it's the the standing great great song from a very great album, Rubber Soul, from nineteen sixty five. Um, it, uh, Lennon and McCartney on this disagree on who did the majority of the writing of the song. <laughs> They've, they usually give ownership very easily of who wrote what, you know, McCartney was all yesterday and let it be. And, you know, Lennon was help and so forth, but, um, they disagree on this one. Most experts and most people who are around the situation basically say, the poetry of the lyrics and everything are all Lennon's where McCartney was responsible for the majority of the melody of the tune. Uh, but not all, um, it's of, uh, the places and the people of John's youth, uh, and their importance and the shaping of who he is, as Kirk kind of mentioned, uh, it's hauntingly beautiful. It's also deeply human in a way that few Beatles songs uh, about love ever were. Uh, it just really connects with some of those deep-seated emotional tissues that we have on the subject. Uh, Lyrics like, I know I often stop and think about them. In my life, I love them all. Just stick with you. Kirk said a lot, so I won't say any more except to say that it is pure gold. And uh, I think you said it well that it wasn't one of those early in my life Beatles songs that I would have put in my top 10, but there's just no denying its legs and its importance to them. And it's remaining importance in the music world in my life. My number two. Excellent choice. I want to go listen to all these songs now. I know (laughs) I actually put my top 10 together (laughs) on a playlist. I was listening to them and it's like, yeah, these are great. All right. Uh, Yeah. I'm, I'm on a road trip tomorrow and I think that's uh, that may be a plan. I need to listen to more Beatles. Yeah. Yeah. It's always a good thing. Okay. Well, we are coming up to the uh, number one and uh, let's review what our 10 through twos were so Kirk, who was your 10 through two? Uh, starting at number 10, I had my first cheat, which was a tie between strawberry fields forever and penny lane. The singles that were released as an A and B side between, uh, the albums revolver and Sergeant Pepper's only hearts club band. Number nine was while my guitar gently weeps, the Harrison classic, uh, number eight, hard days night, uh, from the movie and the soundtrack album. Uh, number seven was my second cheat, the Abbey Road medley of Golden Slumbers Carry That Weight in the End. That one's totally allowed. <laughs> uh, hey Jude was number six. I Want to Hold Your Hand uh, was number five. And Mount Rushmore started with Yesterday at number four, In My Life at number three, and Let It Be at number two. My number 10 was I Want to Hold Your Hand, followed uh, number nine by Eleanor Rigby. Come Together was at number eight. Why My Guitar Gently Weeps was number seven. Yesterday at six, A Day in the Life at five. Help came in as the first spot on my Mount Rushmore. Something by George Harrison, number three. In My Life was the number two. And that brings us to Kirk Trudner. What is your number one? 
My number one is a song that you've already talked about. Uh, I think it is the Beatles' best song of all time. I think I'm not alone in that description. It's a song you've already talked about. And it is uh, the last song on the classic Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, and that is A Day in the Life. This was their masterwork. As you mentioned, it was the ultimate Lennon and McCartney collaboration. Not just two guys writing bits and pieces of songs, but sitting eye to eye and looking at each other as they wrote this song. Um, this is a song that took a while for people to recognize that it was the band's masterwork. Uh, a lot of people think that that um, after you know John Lennon's murder uh, and going back and looking at the Beatles catalog, a day in life became much more poignant. Uh, and, and people began to recognize it for the, the, the quality and the, the, the masterwork that it was, um, a day in the life is important for a number of reasons, mainly because Sgt. Pepper being one of the first concept albums, if not the first concept album in doing a, a song like the day in the life, which was so ambitious, it gave other rock acts permission to, I'm going to quote the Atlantic magazine here. It became acceptable for rock musicians to strain at their songs with the same compulsion that artists brought to a portrait. You talked a lot about the chord, uh, which ended the song. Uh, there's, there's a great kind of observance that the chord that began a hard day's night and the chord that ended a day in the life were really bookends of what could be considered the Beatles most fruitful creative period. And that would be the albums, Hard Day's Night, Help, Rubber Soul, Revolver, and Sgt. Pepper. Cool. And I thought that was a really interesting way of, of looking at that, those two real important chords. Yeah. Um, a Day in the Life is ambitious. It is thoughtful. It is it is a song you can listen to over and over again and pick out different things. Um, it's a song you can read about. It's a song that you can you can delve into. And it's important, just as important now as it was, again, over 50 years ago. So my number one, my my prominent face on Mount Rushmore is A Day in the Life. Excellent choice. Uh, and yeah, uh, as far as I was concerned, uh, on my top six, you could have s slotted them in a lot of different ways and been fine. Uh, very, very worthy choice. Excellent, excellent song. Important song. My number one is uh, one that you've talked about before, and so that puts us at six uh, on the over-under. So you win that, I guess. You were closer to that, even though we didn't match in anything. And my number one is the title track from the album Let It Be from 1970. As you said, it was inspired by a dream of McCartney's mother. Uh, it is McCartney's legacy gem uh, from the Beatles, uh, in my opinion. It, it was made... When uh, they were at their worst uh, and um, the group was just not getting along and it's kind of reflective that it starts off as just McCartney and it's his beautiful piano playing on the baby grand uh, there at Apple Studios. But then as they kind of did in these recording sessions, somehow, some way they came together to still produce good music. And you see that in this in this song, it starts off just with McCartney, but then each other player starts coming in with starting with Ringo and then it just becomes the whole group there. And also Billy Preston on Oregon, <laughs> the, the uh, unofficial fifth Beatle there at the end. Uh, little trivia. Lennon plays the bass on this. Uh, Harrison plays the only guitar. Lennon plays the bass since McCartney's on piano. Uh, so Lennon was a little off instrument there. Uh, Harrison's guitar solo is kind of a gift to himself. Uh, McCartney backed off for once. <laughs> he could be a little over controlling sometimes and just let 
George just do this beautiful, simple, perfect, perfectly fitting guitar solo into it. Uh, and uh, it was a nice bridge in the middle of the of the song. Beautiful, serene piano intro, as I mentioned. Uh, it's a great vehicle uh, for the beauty of McCartney's voice. It really shows it off. Uh, amazing flow and sync between the lyrics and the music. It's just a really perfect piece of music, in my opinion. Uh, it's a song of despair and great hope all at once. Uh, and one month after its release, McCartney announced the breakup of the group. So much like you talked and alluded to for the song, The End, uh, Let It Be itself is one of those musical epitaphs they left about the, their career and their time together. Uh, it's a beautiful final mega hit for the group and uh, an enduring symbol of who they were. Let It Be, my number one. You know, as you talk through it, it, it actually occurred to me, and I, and I see if you agree with me. It really is, you know, I hate using the phrase, but I can't think of anything else right now, but it's almost a sampler platter of the Beatles. To your point, McCartney started it, and we were we got a little bit of his, you know, yesterday and, and simple piano playing kind of style. And then Ringo came in with the drums, and you got, you know, the Ringo thing going on with Paul. And then George had the had the yeah. guitar solo and by the very end, it was the more raucous kind of feel that Lennon liked as well. So it really kind of represented the, the, the four quadrants of the Beatles very nicely. And, and as we both said, it, it, it's just a great coda for the Beatles, but they left us with a very positive message. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, it, it was just, it is, it's a nice little sampling of everything. Uh, I love Ringo's little, little drum fill intro for his part. And I think it was, I'm trying to remember. I was reading an article about a bunch of different drummers. I want to say it was Questlove from uh, the Jimmy Fallon show, or uh, yeah, Jimmy Fallon show, who um, talked about that and said that was just classic Ringo. That's what he was. He was so smooth and silky, but understated. He wasn't that look at me, look at me, look at me drummer. But what he did was great and smooth and a lot better than people people thought he was. I would agree. All right, good stuff. So now here comes something that's going to be probably almost as long as our initial list. So let's do unlisted the sequel. Who are some of the honorable mentions and guys that could have very easily made your list on another day? Every other song the Beatles wrote and recorded. <laughs> They're nicely said. <laughs> it's it's it's. I'm I don't I'm disagree only partially with that. kidding. Honestly, I, I mean again, go back and listen to the catalog. Put the Beatles catalog on shuffle. And you're not going to get a bad song <laughs> and you could make a case for 80% of them to be on this list. Yeah. I mean, there were some that came so close, uh, ticket to ride long and winding road. Can't buy me love. Here comes the sun. You've got to hide your love away. I feel fine. Norwegian would get back. They were all it's like, how do I keep these off there? And then you're going to other things. Like we talked about black, you know, blackbird and she loves you. Uh, Back in the USSR, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, we haven't mentioned today. Uh, I Am the Walrus, we haven't mentioned. Fool on the Hill. Uh, two other songs from the album Let It Be, which I love. Uh, the two of Us and I've Got a Feeling. Both great songs, but they just got overshadowed by the title track. So a lot of people don't know them as well. And and here's the thing. All of this, all of this was done in the span of eight years. Yeah. Really, only seven. Ringo joined the group in 62. Yeah. They released their first album in, what, 63? So seven years? That's just remarkable. Yeah. I mean, it's no wonder they, they came apart at the seams. Oh, absolutely. When you looked at the pressures of coming out with two or three albums in a year sometimes or in a two-year span and then doing the touring during the first four years, uh, 
you know, and other rock bands have commented that, you know, it was kind of the thing for groups to break up fairly early. So where we see these groups like the Rolling Stones and Aerosmith and these guys who have just gone to the stones. (laughs) Yeah. You know, who've just gone on and on and on, um, that we're not as used to it, but it was very commonplace back then. Uh, so, but anyway, all right. Well, that was a very long first half and we are going to take a little break and we will come back with our guest and our guest list. So stay tuned. We'll see you in just a bit. Okay, show of hands. Do you stick around for the credits at the end of a movie or a TV show? You might, but most folks don't. And even then, you might not be familiar with half the jobs on there. My name is Bruce Rand Berman. When I came out to L.A. a while back, I found there was a lot more to this industry than I realized. With the help of some great friends and mentors along the way, I've been able to chart my course to where I am today. An experienced television producer doing a podcast about all the different jobs there are in Hollywood and how to get them. So check out Call Time on your favorite podcast platform. You'll hear all about the industry straight from the mouths of the real people who work hard every day and night in the trenches on set and in the office. Yeah, this is my podcast, but it's your call time. Don't be late. We are back, which means it's time for the guest list. And today on the guest list, we have a very special guest. He's a drummer and also an audio engineer. At age 15, he performed his first professional appearance with the group Earl and the Blue Denims. He became Florida's 1978 all-state jazz drummer. Later in Houston, he performed in clubs and in the studio with such acts as Freddie Fender. In 1990, he moved to L.A., and in 93, he took over full-time for Mike Keeley as the drummer of Three Dog Night. He's worked with Little Richard, Dave Mason, Peter Noon, amongst many others, and he's also performed with his own Pat Bouts Rock All-Stars, and he created and operates this very successful real drum studio recording studio. So it's a pleasure to welcome here to talk Beatles with us, Mr. Pat Bouts. Hey, Pat, how are you? Yay! Yay! Good. I'm doing great. How are you guys? Excellent. Good, Pat. It's so good to see you. Can you can you see me? <laughs> Do I actually fit in the? In the in, never mind. Yes, yes, yes. The COVID nineteen is not of a, is not readily apparent. The nineteen pounds. Well, yeah, I did lose a little uh, actually. Yeah. So I actually fit in there. Good. Well, I'm I'm elated to be here and have some fun with you guys. That's awesome. Awesome, and it's a great topic. Yeah, it's our final episode, and uh, we already already found that it's it's a tough it's a tough list to make, as a lot of our lists are, but especially this one. What did you when we called you and uh, asked you to be on it? What did you start to think about that you were going to use as your criteria to break this beast down? You know, um, being an audio engineer, i I do come from a technical standpoint of the Beatles started out using like a, a two-track recorder, like on their, their first record, the Please Please Me. Then they they progressively moved from two-track, which two-track makes it like impossible. Basically, you have to you have to play live and mix the record by standing closer or further back from the, from the microphone. And they uh, ended up with, uh, doing their last record 
um, with eight tracks. So they're actually playing everything. You know, if they if they messed up one thing, they had to go back and start at the beginning. Right. Unlike today, you can take and fix anything. I can. Yeah, if you're singing out of tune, I can make you sound like you're in tune. And <laughs> if you if you play out of time, I can make you play in time. So it's a it's it's an amazing feat that those guys made such great records with George Martin at the helm, and were able to do that. That just shows how talented they really were. Yeah, it, it is amazing. It's funny. I was listening to to the Beatles using the wireless headphones I'm using for the show, and I went back and listened to the first album as we were going through it, and I thought there was something wrong with my headphones because I was getting vocals in one ear and you know the instruments in the other. And it wasn't until it was a couple songs in that I went, "Wait a minute! That's this is the original mono pressing. This is what you would get with that these days." Exactly. And actually, they did a they did an interesting thing. They would they branch out in a couple of the tunes. Um, I want to say it's. Do you want to know a secret? I think is 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 one of them. They do it in. So they sing the verse, and they actually recorded in stereo, and they sing the verse in one side, and then he steps over and stands in the middle, and the vocal comes out of both sides. Oh wow! It's just a little trick trick, but it's very cool. Wow. So all the things that you can do through a board now, they were doing, as you were saying, physically. Yeah. Moving the instruments closer, moving the, the people around. That's, yeah. that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, symphonies have been doing that forever. That's, that's why they set up like they do mm-hmm. with the strings in the front and the percussion in the back. And, and they, they you know, uh, really watch their dynam- dynamics so that they can mix, mix it live. And uh, there's a definite art to that. And we certainly have lost the ability to do that. Right. You know, Pat, Steve and I are, are both in the film TV industry. And, you know, we've had the conversation of when we go to see movies and TV series, can we truly lose ourselves in a movie or a TV show, you know, knowing what it takes to make the sausage? Right. I want to I want to ask you that question. And when it comes to music, can you listen to something and really lose yourself in it, yeah. or do you do you still find yourself just going, "God, I would have done this a little bit different here. Why did they do that here? That kind of thing." Well, yeah. How come they didn't tune that vocal? That's what that's usually what I say. <laughs> um, yeah, that guy's singing awful flat. No, it is it is, it is really hard to um, to get out of that mode, and I'm probably one of the worst for that. Um, I'm, I'm analyzing everything. Um, and it it doesn't speak about anybody's ability to play. It just merely speaks about my OCD of watching and, and listening with such a critical ear. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the same camp with movies and TV shows. You know, I think Steve would agree. Yeah, it's it's very forgivable, especially when you start getting into the mixing or editing aspect. You just it comes with the territory. It's it's tough to separate yourself completely. Yeah, it's you're like trying to paint a picture, and mm-hmm. so I'm always trying to see what picture the guy was painting. And sometimes they're not painting a picture at all. <laughs> but the flip side of that, though, too, is you hear something new and go, "God, I wonder how they did that." And, you know, you begin to explore and discover, which is kind of cool, too. 
Yeah, it's uh, oh, it's it's like anything. If if you listen to it enough times, you can figure out how they pulled it out, pulled it off. So true. But considering for the cool. Beatles' sake, when they did all their stuff, and then you can really start to see the the brilliance, especially of Lennon McCartney, and along with George Martin, just some of the brilliant approaches they had to creating new sounds and solving some what at that time were technical obstacles and they were pretty brilliant. Oh, absolutely. And, and they, you can, as you listen to the records and they get newer, you know, from what 62 or 63 is they start from there and get up to 69. The technical change, the sound changes dramatically. And they actually went from, on Abbey Road, they went from the old tube board, which put a distortion, uh, like a tube distortion on everything. The uh, Abbey Road changed their console out and put a transistor console in there. And it sounded so different that it took the band, they hated it at first. It took the band like a week to get into the groove of playing on a transistor and being recorded on a transistor console. And then they started to love it because it took away some of the overtones that you got from bass and things and low end instruments. And uh, they sounded much cleaner and much clearer. Right. Right. It's almost like watching old TV shows on DVDs. You can see the blemishes on the actors or you can, you know, see spaces and walls where they put special effects just because the image is so clean. It sounds like that's what was happening with the sound is it it was improving. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's let's get into uh, your list and we can talk more Beatles as we talk about uh, who you have on your list. So let's break it into sections and let's first start with your number 10 through eight. Who are those selections? Uh, number 10, a uh, little help for my friend, um, off the Sergeant Pepper. Um, Eleanor Rigby is number nine and Norwegian Wood off the rubber soul album is number eight. Oh, I love that song. Great song. What really brought these songs to your list? What made them stand out for you? Um, I'll tell you a little help from my friend, um, is probably Ringo at at his best. So I I count that as that and come together as as Ringo's best uh drumming on on any of the records. And that that's why I picked that one. Right. Um Eleanor Rigby, I, I honestly I just I just like the song. Um <laughs> you know if you'd asked me to put this list together when I was younger it would have been, you know, Yellow Submarine and, you know, those kinds of songs. And Maxwell Silverhammer. Yeah. yeah, there you go. And uh, my tastes have evolved as I've, well, as I've evolved, hopefully, for the better. Yeah, we, uh, Eleanor Rigby made my list also, uh, and I used it, uh, or the example of how it was one of the first songs where they were really trying to put string instruments into it, which then later became, uh, became the full-fledged orchestras for uh, the uh, Magic Mystery Tour and Sgt. Pepper days. Yeah, yeah. And then my number eight uh, is Norwegian Wood. 
Yeah, so glad you picked that. I love that song. Just missed my list. Yeah, you know, I I liked it um, because it it sounded like they went from kid songs to adult songs on Rubber Soul. It also had the word wood in it. I mean, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's staying in. <laughs> that works for us. You know, it, it's funny. One of the things that, that Steve and I talked about as we start looking at these songs is, you know, we're talking about songs that are now over 50 years old. And if we were having the same conversation, you know, in high school or, or even in our early 20s, we're still talking about songs that would have been like Al Jolson, you know, 50 years prior to us. Yeah. So the fact that these th- these songs still have such resonance. And one of the things that that I've been taking out of it and we talked about in our section was the maturation of the songs and to your point with, with, you know, Norwegian wood, the songs became less the buddy Holly kind of simple kind of things of the first few albums. And they really started to move into, you know, much more well-rounded and thoughtful songs. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that was one of the things I was alluding to earlier too, is uh, the Beatles first UK album, which was called with the Beatles. Um, or I guess that was their second album, but their first two albums had a lot of covers on it. They it did. It was only about 50-50. Yeah. It was covers and then original songs. Capital, for the first U.S. album, which was Meet the Beatles, they wanted to have primarily original works. And I think there might have been one cover on there, if I remember right. But, um, oh, yeah, which was uh, Till That Was You, I think, uh, from the music, uh, the musical music, The Music Man. They definitely wanted their original thing, and I think the Beatles seized upon that also. And they said, "Yeah, we could still just do all this pop stuff and do these Chuck Berry things and these Elvis things and Buddy Holly things." But they were great writers, and they did grow up, especially on Rubber Soul and Revolver. I think those are the two albums that they became the band that they are. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, the the, uh, the please please me was you know technically their you could tell it was their first record. Right. You know, it just didn't have the, the pizzazz of the later records. Exactly. Exactly. On Norwegian wood, what really, besides, besides having the word wooden, (laughs) what else? (laughs) Do you need another reason? (laughs) Do you have, do you have a preference or toward the story? Or the music, or is it a perfect blending of both for you? Um, you know, I think it's a really, really good song. I, you know, I mean, that's why it was, you know, one of the Beatles' top songs because it told a story. And uh, people say that as a cliche sometimes, but it really is all about the song. It doesn't matter who's singing it sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's about the song. And uh, and that that was a great song. Absolutely. Hey, Pat, true or, true or false, Lennon and McCartney were the best songwriting duo of all time. Oh, that's true. And the most pr- prolific. I mean, how many tunes did they actually write? I know it's well over 100. Yeah. Cause I think, oh, easily, yeah. Because I think the Beatles themselves, I think, have 188. Yeah. 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 And, and the, something Steve and I were talking about is this all took place in a seven-year period. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Basically. It's amazing. I mean, some of the earlier things came out when they were working the cave and working in Hamburg and everything. But uh, yeah, for the most part, they jammed it in there. All right, let's talk about what are your seven, six, and five choices? Uh, number seven, here comes the sun. Uh, I will point out that that was, 
in my opinion, that's George Martin's finest production on that record, on the Abbey Road record. Uh, number six is, you guessed it, Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Um, hey. <laughs> uh, I, I love that song. Me too. Knowing you as I do, that doesn't surprise me in the least. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the their first use of the transistor console. Mm-hmm. That particular song was the first one they cut on it, and then they cut the rest. Of, I think they cut the rest of that record on on that uh, the transistor console. So you, if if you listen from the previous, uh, you know, record, you can you can definitely hear a difference. And then number five uh, is Come Together. Nice. Another brilliant Ringo drumming song. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit. I agree. Showed off his talents very well. It did. And he did some things that you wouldn't, as a drummer, think to do. Yep. And that's that's the brilliance of Ringo. Is Ringo an underrated drummer? Oh, of course. So on... Here comes the sun. What separated that for you from maybe some of the other Harrison songs? I don't know. Maybe something else appears on your list from Harrison, but because uh, I had something on my list, we both had uh, "While My Guitar Gently Weeps" on our lists, and we both talked about "Here Comes the Sun" also because that's a fantastic song. It was t- it was tough for me to leave off. For me, I, it's what I said. That that I mean, it's a great song as you know, 99.9% of all Beatles songs are, but it, George Martin's production on it is just fantastic. If, if you didn't have that, I, I probably would have moved it down the list. Yeah. So you're saying George Martin, his engineering and his production, as opposed to George Harrison, just so our listeners Correct. Are, are clear with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was, it was a collaboration between not just the band, but but it was the band and George Martin. Right. I mean, George came up with so many cool things. Um, you know, like the moving from the microphone, the one side to the to the center, um, from verse to chorus, just little things like that that mean a lot. Like like you're out of focus for the verse, but then you're in focus for the chorus, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked a little bit about George Martin earlier where, you know, I, I had remarked that I found something online as I was doing research saying that George Martin really felt that he was able to start putting his mark on the band with the song yesterday because it was his idea to bring in the strings. Originally, it was acoustic, right? but he was the one that brought in the strings. The trade-off there was that song became the first song the Beatles could not reproduce live because of the strings. Right. And they were willing to make that artistic jump. Yeah, well, yeah, there I mean it happens every day now there needs to be a difference between a record and live, I think. Um Absolutely. Because one is pr- produced at the moment and you may improvise something that that you feel at that at that particular moment and a record is for your listening pleasure, you know, with headphones and a glass of Cavassier, and <laughs> big fat Cuban, you know, and that's that's cigar. Right? Yeah. yeah, I was going to say a, a cigar, right? <laughs> that's a good point about uh, studio versus live. But then also, then there is George Harrison's very good friend Jeff Lynn, who tries to give you the same thing live. Uh, his 
his ELO concerts with the strings and with everything, you know, they're so massively and meticulously produced on stage that it almost sounds like the studio recording, but that's exactly what he's after. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's true. I think he's, he's I, you know, I mean, the, the highest compliment you can get, I guess, as a musician is, man, they sound exactly like the record, but then it can also be the biggest insult. <laughs> it's a two edged sword, you know? Yeah. They sound exactly like the like the record. But like a couple of Kirk's favorite groups with the Grateful Dead and Steely Dan and definitely your group, Three Dog Night, you know, the, some groups are very famous for you're going to go there and you're going to get a little bit of a different experience. You're going to hear the songs you love. You might hear something new and you also might hear a bit of a new take on the songs that you love because it's every show is a little different. It's going to be organic. It's going to be fun. It's going to be live. Well, I, I will throw something in here with that regard. The last time I saw Three Dog Night with Pat, during the song, Mama Told Me Not to Come, Pat rapped for about a minute and a half. Uh, did I? Am I remembering that right? Not a minute and a half. More like a second and a half. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe it, just, it was so good, I just thought it was longer. But in that whole vein of, of mixing things up a little bit, but not too much because you still want it to sound familiar. Yeah, I, I thought you, you said uh, it was a... It felt like a minute and a half, but it was only a second. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, I'm glad well, that guy's well, done. Obviously, one of you had a cognac and a big fat Cuban. <laughs> well, then it must have been Pat because yeah. I had the overpriced Pacific Amphitheater beer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think it's time for Mount Rushmore. Which is, yeah, the, your final four, but let's leave number one for last. Tell us about your first, about four, three, and two. Let's go with that first. So uh, do you want to know a secret? First of all, because it's off their first record and it's it's done on the, the two-track thing. Um, then uh, one of our all-time favorites, My Guitar Gently Weeps, made number three. And um, Eight Days a Week made number two. See, you're landing, you're landing all the things that we were wishing that or lamenting that we couldn't put on our list. This is great. Uh, do you want to know a secret? Let's talk about that. That's one of my closet comfort food favorite Beatles songs. I think it just doesn't get the credit that it deserves half the time. I think it's a smart, smart song. Oh, just the, just the question. Yep. Do you want to know a secret? I mean, that Absolutely. draws you in right there. But lyrics, lyrics to match melody to match. Uh, Lennon does a great job with it. It's, it's nice. And it's a little bit unexpected too. It, it isn't the, the buddy yeah. Holly again, I keep going back to that kind of simplistic, you know, shaving a haircut kind of stuff. It, it, it's a little bit, you know, it, that's one of the first half steps in evolution for the Beatles. Yes. And then eight days a week. I Tell me about eight days yeah. a week, because that's the one that stuck out for me. Why eight days a week? It's a, a To me, it's a good song, but it's not a great song. Why is it a great song for you? Well, first of all, it does it, the play on seven days and eight days a week is, is good for me. Mm -hmm. um, it's a great technical recording. I think it's a great pop song. I just like the song. Awesome. It's awesome. a nice energy song where they're all very active and very participatory within the song itself. I think it's a lot like Can't Buy Me Love and Help and Hard Day's Night. It kind of fits into that vein that where that, that energy comes at you. Yeah. And I think it is a bit of an underrated song, too. You know, don't, don't mistake. When I say I don't think it's a great song, I, I'm looking at it in terms of Beatles. Every song is great, but you still have to kind of, you know, 
strata them in some way, shape, or form. But it's one of those songs that doesn't get a lot of of airplay, just not talked about. Certainly not like some of the other songs that may not be as good. Uh, so that's why I find it interesting that it's on your list. I love the choice. Uh, yeah, you know, I've I've played that song a million times in different gigs with, uh, you know, you guys know who Mitch Weissman is or any of those guys that were in that uh, uh, Beatlemania. Oh, okay. And they, so, so I, I played with those guys and they, they did that song every night. It was great, great song. Oh, oh that's awesome. Very fun. I love that. Well, then that brings us to your numero uno, the ultimate Beatles song in Pat Bounce's mind. What is that one? In, in my mind, yes. <laughs> Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Oh, nice. Ooh. Tell us why you love Lucy. Uh, yes, I didn't go for I didn't go for any of the yesterdays and and uh I wanted to be somewhat different. I love the dynamics and the effects on that song. Absolutely. I think the dynamics of the song really tell help tell this the story of the song. And it's another great song. It is. I remember hearing that song as a kid and just the imagery, you know, to a seven or eight year old. You know, never mind. I I didn't know, you know, about the the potential drug connection. I didn't know about, you know, any of the psychedelic stuff. I just heard those really cool images. And it, to me, it was just such a great exercise to try and picture all of those things. And it, it's always stuck with me. Sergeant Pepper is easily one of my top three albums of all time. Yeah. And that, that was, that was them at their technical height. Um, mm-hmm. I, I always, I always thought they used such interesting instruments. I know that, you know, they, they were using tape delays that they didn't use on previous records and, and all kinds of things. So I think song for song, it's tough to beat that album. And yeah. the fact is they're still just having a blast. They were glad to not be touring anymore. And so they were like kids in a candy store and you can just feel it through the, through the vinyl back then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's before the real fissures in the band really took hold. Yes. And it is a shame that, that it wasn't long, well, too long after that, that they weren't a band anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It really Um, is. Well, Pat, I'll have you know that you and I matched one song. (laughs) (laughs) What was that? And that was, uh, while my guitar gently Ah, weeps. Okay. Well, Pat, you and I matched three because I had that also, but then I also had come together and I also had Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. I'm your buddy today. (laughs) It's interesting to hear everyone's take on it, especially because these guys were such great writers. How do you pick? Yeah. 10 to 10 different people could have 10 different lists and nobody would be wrong. Yeah. Oh, you'll, you'll get some arguments from, from some staunch Beatle fans. I'm sure. Sure. But, uh, these are all our opinions as, and I come from a different, um, look at music than someone who is a mere listener. Yeah. No, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. I was saying that it's uh, nice to hear from a professional, especially somebody who works in both as a performer, but also from the mixing and engineering side uh, to get your take from it. And all the songs on your list are 
at the very least, very interesting from the technical sound uh, or standpoint, very innovative, very trend setting. So great list. We appreciate you uh, putting it together for us. Oh, well, th- thanks. So what's next? I know you got a busy year, year and a half coming up with uh, concerts coming back and three dog night hitting the road. Uh, what else is going on for you? Well, I've, uh, I'm still working my tail off in the studio. I've been working with um, Ponce. He was on The Voice in 2016. So we've been working on a record, which we're getting close to finishing. But what a singer this guy is and what a songwriter. So we're working, we're working on that. Mm-hmm. Um, working on a couple of jam band records. Um, you got to love the jam band. Awesome. Um, it's it's hard to whittle it down, of course. Uh, you know, to under uh, eight minutes um, <laughs> for each song. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of like this podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there's some talented there. There are some really talented musicians out there, and I am bound and determined to capture their performances and bring them to people who'd like to hear them. Well, that's good because oh, that's great, Pat. We we need people like you, so that can be done. <laughs> that is great, Pat. The next time I'm in Florida, I really do want to try and get get together. It's been too long since we've been in the same room, and man, I would love to keep this conversation going. I, I'm just fascinated. I, I I mentioned this to all of our guests. Steve will tell you that, but I just love getting your viewpoint, professionals' viewpoints on the topics that we bring up, and this is fascinating. The technical conversation the technical as- aspects that you're bringing up are just amazing absolutely well good i'd and uh yeah it's been I, I i'm trying to remember the last time i was the last time i saw you and it was in la i think it was i think it was I, it's I, either here or at the at one of the last full wakefields a couple of years ago so it's been too long yes yes and uh this time i i promise i'll i'll stay close <laughs> oh perfect Good, good, good. We all have to have goals. So thank you. I've been working on that one for a long time. <laughs> and there, there's a topic for season two. Pat, thanks so much for doing this. We really appreciate you having on, having you on. It's been a, it's been great. Just great to see you and catch up. Yes, a bit. you too, man. Is there any way for people to follow you on social media if uh, they choose to do so? Oh yeah, um, if they're interested in the studio, Facebook and Instagram is RDS recording. Um, if they search for that, they'll find my studio site. And uh, of course, three dog night.com. Uh, there's also a three dog night, Facebook and Instagram. I think this year I'm going to try and branch out and I'm going to get a feed from front of house and we're going to put it on my GoPro and uh, you'll actually get an actual mix of us playing live. Oh, that's awesome. Terrific. That Terrific. is great. Hopefully we'll get a chance to see you in San Diego or some of your other stops in the upcoming year. And best of luck to you. And thanks again so much for coming and spending some time with us here at Populist. All right. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Love you, brother. Take care. You too, man. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that was awesome. Uh, great to have Pat and his insight. Uh, another successful guest list in my opinion yeah it's good to see pat and and talk 
music with him. I mean, the guy's a veteran of the industry. He's with one of those bands that was actually around when the Beatles were playing. So it's, it's kind of a nice crossover. Yeah. Yeah. One of those bands. It's Three Dog Night, dude. I know. It's one of bad. the most underrated bands. He wouldn't say it, but I'll say <laughs> it. I think Three Dog Night's one of the most underrated bands in, in rock and roll, and they should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Pat, send your check to me. If you're talking about American rock and influ- influences of rock in the 60s, if you're not mentioning them, you're not doing your list right. But anyway. I agree. <laughs> All right. I agree. That brings us to our next segment, which is... The Populist. The Populist. Thank you all for voting, for those of you who did. And let's start it off. We have a little traffic jam going on in number 10 and number 9. Number 10, we have a lot of ties, starting with Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, followed by Penny Lane, Back in the USSR, Can't Buy Me Love, Ticket to Ride, one of my personal favorites, and Day Tripper. Uh, Tied uh, for number 9 was Hello Goodbye. In My Life, Get Back, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Eleanor Rigby, Hard Day's Night, Revolution, and Blackbird. So actually a few songs that made both yours and my list are (laughs) tied for number nine. Uh, Number eight was a tie between While My Guitar Gently Weeps and All You Need Is Love. Oh, it's the first time we've heard that today. Good song, though. Number seven was a tie between The Long and Winding Road and Come Together. And number six by itself was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Number five, Hey Jude, was uh, slotted in there. Number four, the first of the Mount Rushmores, was given to Help. Number three was Here Comes the Sun by George Harrison. Number two, Let It Be, leaving the number one choice from our listeners as Yesterday. That's a good number one. It's, it's hard to argue with that. That's, that's quality stuff. You can't go wrong. As we said, 100 people could have 100 lists and nobody would be wrong. Not with the Beatles. Yeah, but I also I also like that our listeners got a couple of things in there, and uh, you know, the uh, long and winding road, very very worthy to be on a lot of top ten lists, also. So that was nice to see there. And uh, Sergeant Pepper's, how, yeah. how can you think of the Beatles and not think of that song? That's good stuff. And all you need is love. Yep, great yeah. tune. Well, that uh, about does it for this episode and for season one. Wow. <laughs> No kidding. It didn't go by quickly because we were doing the work, but then again, it went by very quickly. And I, I think we had a great time uh, doing it. Love bringing all the different topics and meeting all the new guests. What did you think? I, I, I just want to say thank you to you for, for coming up with the idea and partnering with me and, and giving me the opportunity to do this. I want to say thank you to the listeners who've given us great feedback and great input, whether it's uh, direct messages or on Facebook or, or the feedback on the populist. Um, and I really want to shout out to, to uh, my family who has been great supporters of this and to uh, a lot of my dear old friends from Northern California, guys I went to high school with who have been with us from the very start. They've supported us financially. Uh, they have given us great feedback and, continue to give me nothing but grief about my omission of the who from our season or our episode number two about best rock bands. Uh, but I do want to thank them for their, their continued support. It means a lot. Yep. Very nice. Yeah. I also want to thank, uh, like you mentioned, our families are significant others. Uh, your Jill, my Sean, um, uh, Paul Durbin and Robert Dooley's, uh, two guys we knew from the universal days who, uh, were both, uh, financial contributors. We appreciate that a lot. Um, uh, our friend, uh, Jill Jones, who, uh, helped to guide me through the early stages of developing the logo. And I appreciated that. So all our friends who, uh, chipped in, in their own way, we do appreciate it. And, uh, 
you help us and uh, we hope you keep listening to the show and enjoying the show. But this is going to be a bit of a hiatus. We're going to take about uh, two months off, but we should be back toward the end of summer with season two. Uh, but still, keep your eyes open for updates on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and on our website uh, for um, more information of things to come and maybe uh, a possible bonus two guys in a bar episode. We might just throw that in to help tie over the uh, the big break that we're going to take on our normal stuff. Uh, so check out the website for more info on that at populistpodcast.net. You can find season one of Populist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or wherever you go to get great podcasts. We are a member of the Buzzsprout community, and Populist is a vintage year production. That's right. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash populistpodcast. We're at Twitter at populist underscore pod and Instagram at populistpod. Well, I don't know if there's too much more to do. I'm looking forward to the summer, uh, looking forward to uh, seeing you in person. Well, yeah, in fact, one of my trips, I got to see you in person <laughs> for the first time in forever. So that was fun hanging out. For the first time in a long time. And, that was good. And Sean it was good. Hopefully we can do it again this summer. Yeah. Uh, but we will uh, be planning new things for season two. We've already got a list work working uh, and uh, it should be a lot of fun things. So thanks again, everyone. Have a great summer. Check out the website. Give us ideas for upcoming episodes that you'd like to see. And we will see you soon. Bye-bye. Stay safe, everybody. Go Giants. (laughs) 